Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hey guys, welcome to When Diplomacy Fails. This is the next installment of the Franco-Dutch War, and it's a bit of a doozy. They're all heating up, they're all pretty exciting at the moment, so I'm glad you stopped by to have a listen. And if this is your first time listening to When Diplomacy Fails, I hope you'll listen to our back catalogue as well, especially the beginning of this war so that you have a better idea of what exactly is going on with Louis XIV and the Dutch and the English and everything else. So When Diplomacy Fails is on Patreon, which basically means that, because of you guys, I'm able to do some pretty incredible stuff. Everything from merchandise to extra content to brilliant conversation is all coming out of When Diplomacy Fails, And it is all because you guys pledge a small amount every month to keep this guy expanding and to keep his baby going, really. I mean, it's pretty incredible. By the time this podcast comes out, we'll almost certainly have smashed our goal of $300 a month, which is really quite crazy. And that means that an extra hour of content will be available every single month to patrons who pledge $5 or more a month to me when diplomacy fails. I mean, it's madness. But in return for that you get an RSS feed link that you can copy into your favorite podcatcher, which will immediately link you guys to the Extra Members feed. Well, what's so great about the Extra Members feed, you might be wondering, and why do I keep on banging on about it? Well, the great thing about the Members feed is that it basically gets rid of everything that's annoying about this podcast, because there's no BeFit reminders, there's no please support me on Patreon, there's no ads or anything like that. It's just the podcast. And... Since we've smashed that $300 goal by the time this comes out to you guys, it means an hour extra of content as well. So yeah, why would you not do it? I really am indebted to those that support this podcast, and I can't thank you guys enough for making the increased viability of this great hobby of mine, well, actually realistic. I can actually make money off it now. And after I send all the patrons what they're entitled to, because we recently got some pretty sweet merchandise as well, I'll be able to actually make a decent living out of it. Eventually, anyway, who knows what could happen. And I would also remind you guys that pretty soon, in May, in fact, from the 18th of May, a pretty sweet thing is coming your way. So don't worry. If you're sick of me talking to you about this Patreon stuff, it'll all make sense soon enough. And pretty soon you'll be so overwhelmed and so excited, 
you won't know where to look or what to listen to. But hopefully, hopefully, you'll listen to this podcast. Alrighty, I rambled enough. Remember, go to patreon.com forward slash when diplomacy fails or wdfpodcast.com. Click on the Patreon banner. It's all there, guys. That's how to support this podcast. Alrighty, let's bring you to the next installment of the Franco-Dutch War. So welcome back to the War History Friends. Today we delve into a part of our story which, well, I've been dreading for some time. If you didn't know that this is where we were headed all along, then in a way that's great, since I love the idea that history could be so involving and dramatic that it'd flow like a story that you don't want to spoil by reading ahead yourself. On the other hand, though, if you're a fan of a certain staple of this podcast... You may want to get the tissues ready, because arguably one of the greatest and most unfortunate crimes of this war takes place within this episode, amidst displays from the people that watch it happen, which are enough to make one nauseous. Without giving anything else away then, let's get down to it, as I take you to early August 1672. We have a pretty witty king, whose word no man relies on. He never said a foolish thing, nor ever did a wise one. John Wilmot, the second Earl of Rochester, in reference to Charles II. As August 1672 approached, one could hear shrieks of delight from the merchants in Holland. Somehow it had arrived, a great flotilla of East Indiamen, sailing all the way around the world past the Cape Colony, along the Bay of Biscay and then over towards the west of Ireland, past Scotland, the Shetland Islands, and through the merciful gaps left in the British naval blockade. They had fought numerous sorties with the enemy, as the war had erupted when they were at sea, but by the 3rd of August 1672, Arnout van Overbeek arrived off Holland's coast, safe in the natural assurance of her shoals that a greatly boosting victory was at hand, though not the kind we may have expected. Historian C.R. Boxer noted that the almost certain miraculous escape of this rich fleet caused as much joy in what was left of the United Provinces as it did chagrin and annoyance in England. It was a badly needed morale boost for a country that had faced the brunt of Europe's most powerful military force on a scale not seen in Western Europe in a generation. But was it too late? One can only imagine the scene that greeted Admiral von Overbeek, who had once been a lawyer by trade in the very country he now pulled his laden treasures into. By the end of July 1672, the military situation had apparently stabilised in the Dutch Republic. Louis XIV planned on returning home before August began, and he already made preparations to do so when it became clear that the Dutch delegates 
were not willing to offer him the supplication which he felt his military position deserved. In certain points along the rivers Esel, Meuse and the Lesser Rhine, had French and their allied German forces crossed, pouring past the crumbling Dutch defences and the demoralised Dutch militias, neutered due to their lack of reinforcement or foreign aid. The country had been paralysed owing to the crippling domestic woes of the Republic, which saw William of Orange acquire the Stadtholdership in early July, after repeated calls and then riots from the rampant commonality, demanding the instatement of their beloved prince. The people had been stoked and inflamed by the most vicious and, it has to be said, preposterous of rumours, which put it that Johann de Witt was the pro-French slave of Louis XIV, that only London could or would save the Republic, that Charles II would do so out of the affections he felt for his nephew, but that the blasted regents were ruining such opportunities to make a desperately needed peace. On the 4th of August 1672, a beleaguered and depressed Johann de Witt stood to address the States General. Having recovered from an assassination attempt on his life in the previous month, he was not about to present a picture of defiance, well, at least not to his domestic enemies. DeWitt acknowledged the suffering which the Republic had endured and implored his colleagues to continue to resist the French. Yet he maintained that he couldn't continue as Grand Pensionary, as he had done for nearly 20 years, in the face of the culmination of his worst fears. With William as both Stadtholder and Captain General, there was nothing to prevent him from wielding the power of his ancestors, and with that went the last vestiges of independence that the Regent regime had. DeWitt also commented on the sinister view which the commonality had taken of the regents, and concluded by saying that if he stayed on as Grand Pensionary it would do disservice to the common cause. Johann DeWitt, Grand Pensionary for so many years and the guiding hand through some of the Republic's toughest years, was permitted to resign by the Dutch governing body. DeWitt was given a seat on the High Council of Justice, another advisory body of the Dutch Republic which I will studiously avoid describing, and efforts were made to find a successor for the newly available vacancy. Meanwhile, across the Republic, it seemed as though events had taken a turn. Though the commonality still clamoured for some kind of action to be taken against the regents, and though much falsehoods still continued to be spouted by those that followed William of Orange, the panic which initially greeted the overwhelming French advance had mostly subsided by the middle of July. This was because of the significant act committed by the Dutch on the 22nd of June 1672. Amidst peasant revolt, imminent surrender apparently days away and political disgrace soon to characterise the republican system, the sluices were opened, unleashing torrents of seawater over land once reclaimed from the sea. The Dutch also broke their dikes, the more permanent structures designed to essentially dam water off from the vulnerable and low-lying farmland, and the result was flooding on an unimaginable scale. The sheer misery inflicted upon the peasantry in this case was such that the already violent commonality had to be significantly guarded by large companies of militia and prevented from plugging up the leaks or reducing the impact on their inundated lands. The effect was depressing on the Dutch farmer, but it meant the ruin of the French. On the 26th of June, realising too late what was being done, French forces advanced to the town of Moyden, where the major sluice gates were controlled, in order to prevent further flooding. By now, though, the town had been reinforced, the French were beaten back, and the final sluice gates were opened. In James Faulkner's biography of Signor Vauban, he noted that 200 square miles of land was submerged, sometimes under as much as six feet of water, 
but all over requiring French troops to wade through no matter what its depth. Setting up temporary camp was therefore rendered impossible, and the French experience made vastly more difficult, as the Dutch militias retreated into their fortresses. Once considered crumbling ruins, and granted they still didn't present a picture of strength all over the board, but these structures at least retained their penchant for lying on elevated land, and thus enabling the occupants to remain dry within. The French outside were less fortunate. It quickly became important to fight over stretches of elevated road networks that were transformed into choke points by skittish French soldiers completely unprepared for the terrain and ill-equipped for the challenges, and a renewed Dutch defence further bolstered by the news of incoming foreign aid. It is difficult, wrote one weary French officer, to understand how such a country can exist. It is impossible to tell whether land or water dominates. In the backdrop of this trying situation, it seems as though Louis XIV became bored with the war. Though his forces had success further up the border with the capture of Nijmegen on the 9th of July, any attempts to force the inner positions of Holland were now met with depressing prospects of fording vast open swathes of land dotted with near impregnable strongholds that couldn't be taken by either surprise or much force. The once dried up rivers were swollen by the action, and minor streams became raging torrents that proved a further foil to French logistics. Moats once filled with rubbish now represented impossibly deep chasms, too challenging for even the most dedicated engineers. Simply put, for Louis to finish off the Dutch, he would have to commit more men, materials, and, well, a lot more time. He would also have to motivate his men, or find ways to persuade them to sit or stand in seawater for days on end in his pursuit of glory against an enemy that clearly retained too much of a will to be conquered. Faced with the prospects of a tarnished military experience and a grumbling soldiery, Louis returned to France by the 1st of August. There wasn't anything especially new about the problems that the French faced in the Netherlands. Indeed, in the Eighty Years' War, the Spanish and Dutch faced off in similar circumstances, and one of the reasons why Madrid had proved unable to reconquer the Dutch, even in the Republic's darkest days, had much to do with the ability of the Dutch to turn their lands into an inhospitable patchwork of floods, mud and misery. During the 1620s, for example, the Spanish and Dutch had fought bitterly over just a few square miles of dry ground, as the Spanish desperately tried to maintain their momentum. So too did the French face this same problem. Yet even the Roman historian Tacitus in the 1st century AD was able to note that the cunning Batavi tribes flooded their lands when faced with a Roman invasion, suggesting the natural state of defence which the man-made defences against the forces of the sea granted the defender. It was perhaps inevitable that the Dutch would revert to this old tactic when faced with yet another implacable enemy that they were not properly equipped to fight. That the incident was made so famous, and that it provides us with one of the most striking examples of Dutch tenacity and resilience, even while the Republic's governing apparatus seemed to be spiralling into the abyss, says much for the Dutch sense of purpose during this period. By November of 1672, though we have yet to reach quite as far as this point in our narrative just yet, Seor Boxer would note that Many people in the yet unconquered regions of the United Provinces had begun to feel that the worst was over. This feeling was reflected both in the pamphlet literature and in the newspapers, where the universities of Leiden and Groningen announced their intention of resuming normal classes, despite the still serious situation. 
We know thus that by November, with winter setting in and the autumn rains already reaching a fever pitch, the French efforts against the Dutch effectively ended and a new phase of the war was planned for 1673, which was to characterise the rest of the conflict not as an exclusively Franco-Dutch, but as a European war. Until this occurred, though, Louis still wished to see the Dutch Republic suffer. He ordered occupied the fertile plains outside the Meuse and Esel valleys, and as the frustrations of his soggy soldiers further within the Republic became more intense, outrages were committed on the population, which was reciprocated in kind, as French soldiers were picked off once they left their sodden camps or ventured off the elevated roads. The Bishop of Munster, a key French ally, failed to take Groningen during a brief siege, and simultaneously in late July, the French were forced back from the walls of Sertigenbosch, a symbolic fortress town which had weathered many similar storms during the Thirty Years' War. These two defeats, coupled with the stagnant state of affairs along the Dutch water line, seemed to have finally persuaded Louis to return to France. He had, by this point, come to the end of his patience with Dutch diplomats as well, as representatives both of William of Orange and the Dutch state's general party failed to agree on terms, and the English delegation, led by the Duke of Buckingham and the Earl of Arlington, seemed to have irritated Louis more than they inspired him to pursue the Dutch to the end. Louis advised the Dutch delegation to return to London. By this point, the Sun King still believed that the Dutch would sue for peace, but in the meantime other threats would have to be dealt with. With this in mind, Louis commanded Marshal Turenne to the Rhine, with 25,000 soldiers and 18,000 cavalry, where it was believed Habsburg forces were en route to upset French plans. In addition, it was learned that the elector of Brandenburg, Frederick William, had also marched his forces out. In the Spanish Netherlands also, it seemed that Madrid would order some of its stronger garrisons out to attack the French. Neither Leopold nor the Spanish would actually declare war, though, instead moving provocatively into border fortresses and seizing key crossings along the Rhine. These combined moves to the French west and east, accompanied by the Dutch distraction to the north, could have the effect of surrounding the French in a dangerous pocket. Yet though French tactics outmaneuvered those of the Allies, the major result of the apparent threats and the redirecting of Turenne's forces was the immediate slowdown of the French initiative against the Dutch. By mid-August 1672, with their advantage in numbers absent and the ambitions of their enemies growing, French forces in the Dutch Republic had clearly faded in both intensity and passion. The enthusiasm which had greeted the great successes in the opening months of the war had been transformed into a status close to mutiny in some sectors, as French soldiers agitated to return home or at least go to a different front, any front, other than the sodden hopeless theatre which was Holland's waterline. That's not to say that the Dutch would have been really able to launch a counter-attack, that chance wouldn't come until November, and the French did still occupy and ravage much of the Republic's best land. As John A. Lynn noted though, From August 1672 to May 1673, Turenne campaigned along the Rhine. With this move of a major army to a second front, the French lost the concentration of forces and purpose that they had enjoyed in the initial assault. They would never regain it. Lynn also recounts Louis's curious decision to release from his captivity 20,000 Dutch prisoners of war, who almost certainly would be pressed right back into the badly depleted Dutch armies. Lynn recounts these men were released upon payment of a scant ransom, and adds that they enabled William to improve and put steel into his army, which would soon be called upon to bring the attack to the French. 
As Louis XIV faced the considerable diplomatic and military pressures of Spain, the Holy Roman Emperor and Brandenburg, with only Turenne, his sodden Dutch army and his German allies to answer the challenge. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Charles II of Britain was facing his own challenges. Having prorogued Parliament until February 1673, owing to the rampant unpopularity of the war with the Dutch, Charles was facing the prospect of having to appeal to the same MPs for monetary aid, that he had once tricked, lied to, and led astray on a deliberate policy of revenge. But he would now have to rely on the traditional rights of these peers to grant him the money that he needed. As Louis' subsidies proved nowhere near enough to cover the costs of waging a war, the Spanish piled on their own unique pressures in London, and once it was learned that the English delegation acquired no significant allowances for the English position at the Republic's expense, there was further notes of apathy and indignation amongst the MPs and the commonality in Britain. Worse was to come for Charles and his failing pro-war PR campaign, especially as the considerable pamphlet industries of the Dutch Republic were beginning to whir back into life after their stunted production from the beginnings of the war. William of Orange, so slighted by both his uncle and distant cousin Louis, was now eager for revenge and he knew exactly how to exact it, by appealing to the central fears of the British population. If the Dutch war effort seemed to be stabilising and the French effort hitting a number of stumbling blocks, affairs in the Republic's troubled domestic system were by no means settled. Though the commonality had been tempered by William's accession and perhaps also by De Witt's resignation, still the most incredible and dangerous lies were perpetuated. It has to be said that while I do admire William's tenacity, I mean it's hard not to, he was plainly ruthless in achieving his end goal. To put it in perspective, in William's mind, his ambitions could be best served if the Regent Party wasn't merely out of the way, but 
neutered of its potential influence. Apparently the fulfilment of his ancestral offices in the Captain Generalship and Statholdership weren't enough. Williams seems to have genuinely believed that there was still much to be gained from using the passions of the commonality against the regents, or more specifically against DeWitt. That this was made easier by the sheer volume of falsehoods running rampant in the Republic at the time suited William nicely. A great example is given of when DeWitt wrote to the prince asking him, for the good of the country if nothing else, to throw out or poo-poo some of the rumours which swirled around Johann DeWitt's behaviour or character, and William had unhelpfully responded in mid-July that, well, his own family had been victims of such slander, but that he was sure DeWitt's record would speak for itself. The fact that William wouldn't intervene on behalf of DeWitt's reputation, and that he would do nothing to ease the mob's passions unless those passions endangered his interests, is an ugly fact for those that like to think of William as some kind of sublimely moral human being. That William was merely human, that he blamed the DeWitts above all for being held back from ascending to his ancestral offices for all these years, and that he now utilised the opportunity for revenge that was now open to him, were all facts of the era. Perhaps William didn't foresee where this smear campaign would end, or what its net result would be, but he certainly did nothing to help the now beleaguered regents, who had effectively lost the nation once William became stadtholder in early July. Over quarrels about what to do with the navy, William, as Admiral General, another ancestral office which was now his, used his influence to get his own way, and the States General were again powerless to stop him. The ridiculousness of the slander reached epic levels by mid-August, when a number of pamphlets appeared supposedly testifying to the guilt of Johann de Witt. In the backdrop of glorifying the man who had attempted to murder the Grand Pensionary, a letter appeared entitled, Letter by the King of France to Grand Pensionary Johann de Witt. Within it, a supposed correspondence took place between Louis and his Dutch puppet, de Witt. Louis expressed his concern at the domestic situation in the Republic, urging de Witt to hire a personal guard, and added that he was much pleased with the Regent Party for sticking up for Peter de Groot, who has since moved to the Spanish Netherlands, as he was personally fond of de Groot and had found him very malleable and agreeable. Of course he did. To top it all off, Louis then expressed his sincere relief that the assassins had failed in their efforts to kill de Witt, as if daring those that had tried once to try again. One wonders at the perfectly scandalous contents of the letter, which was probably imagined by an Orangist sympathiser, to handily tie together all of the bad press surrounding DeWitt. To make matters worse, on the 15th of August, another letter was released, this one with far more nuggets of truth than the previous one. This was a copy of the letters sent between Charles II and William of Orange, and rather than incriminate William as you might expect it would, the mob found grounds to despise the DeWitts even more because of it. The contents of the letter weren't especially revolutionary despite their incendiary effects. They repeated the same lies as before, with Charles claiming, in what was in fact a genuine letter from the British king, that the Regent Party were truly the faction he hated in the Dutch Republic, that he loved his nephew William like a son, and that he had much love for all Protestant Dutch citizens, that allying with France was out of necessity for the sake of British security, etc., None of these lies are new to us in any way, but their constant parroting, first in unofficial pamphlets and then here, in a more official capacity and under the watchful eye of the States of Holland, where the town representatives of Harlem were said to have read out its contents, seemed to have confirmed what the mob had already convinced themselves of. Just like during the Second Anglo-Dutch War, the commonality were led to believe by both the Orangists and Charles II himself 
that it was to its regent party rather than the naked English ambition and aggression which was truly responsible for the war. Whereas before De Witt had been in a strong position to quash the rumours, now they threatened to utterly ruin him. Not content with De Witt's resignation, the mob now cried out for vengeance and lambasted the Republic's governing apparatus for not punishing De Witt for his role in the ruinous war. Who had communicated the contents of the letter originally, you might be wondering? Well, William of Orange did. He had received the letter along with the reply to his somewhat treacherous seven points in mid-July, but he had sat on it until the end of July, whereupon he entrusted its contents to his allies and instructed them to use it as they saw fit. In this light, it's really hard to see what followed as anything other than the express wishes of William of Orange. Even though DeWitt was out of power and William had essentially won the domestic battle, which his house had for so long waged, for William this didn't seem to be enough. He didn't just want to win the political battle against his rival, he wanted to politically obliterate his rival. What followed was nothing short of criminal. Under immense pressure from the mob who seemed to lurk menacingly outside, Cornelius DeWitt, Johann DeWitt's brother, was ordered tortured by the state to extract a confession from him on the 19th of August. As he lay in excruciating pain on the rack, Cornelius must have wondered what he'd done to deserve such a fate. Only Admiral de Reuter could boast a more commendable naval service record than he, and yet here he was, tortured by the panicked councillors in a desperate attempt to extract a confession which would appease the mob. But Cornelius held firm, he had, after all, got nothing to confess to, and whether the councillors expected him to claim responsibility for the war, or admit his negligence or his treason is anyone's guess. He, like his brother, were the ideal scapegoats in spite of all that they had done for the state during their tenure of office. Apparently undaunted that Cornelius wouldn't crack, the following morning on the 20th of August 1672 they sentenced him to exile. Johann de Witt was outraged, and journeyed to the location of the councillor's grisly scene at a place called Gewangenport, or Prisoner's Gate, in The Hague. Intending to rescue his brother and appeal to the sense of the councillors, Johann was unaware that while he made his way over, a Mr. Ticklar had been set free. William Ticklar had been arrested under suspicion of giving false testimony earlier in the month, after he approached the prince claiming that Cornelius had tried to hire him to kill William of Orange. Ticklar, a fanatical Orangist and a barber by trade, was eventually imprisoned due to his clear attempts to subvert justice, but the charges had been enough to somehow get Cornelius arrested in the first place. As he'd been brought into custody by councillors who fell over themselves to earn the prince's gratitude, the commonality had gotten wind of the scheme, and... The outrage of the mob was one of the major reasons why Cornelius de Witt still languished in one of the Netherlands' most notorious prisons. Thus, it so happened that when Ticklar was released, he took it upon himself to appeal to the already stoked crowd, who learned that Johann de Witt was in town. Ticklar exclaimed how his release proved his innocence, and that Cornelius had been plainly guilty in trying to implicate him for his cowardly plot. Steeled with this bare-faced lie, the mob grew to a frenzy and marched, boldly and loudly and disorderly, to the prison, where Cornelius and his brother still resided. When the mob arrived outside the walls of the prison on the 22nd of August 1672, Johann de Witt was informed by the terrified councillors that the place was surrounded. When de Witt urged them to use the civil guard to restore order, 
The councillors fired back that he had no power to order them to do anything because he was no longer grand pensionary. By 5pm, the mob had grown even larger, and calls for justice for old traitors, like the Orangist Buat, if you remember him, who had tried to sell Dutch secrets to the English during the Second Anglo-Dutch War. Or everyone's favourite hero, Jacob van der Graaf, who had attempted to assassinate De Witt originally, were passionately made. Rather than settle the crowd or use the force they had at their disposal, the councillors seemed intent to feed the De Witts to the mob and be done with it. As De Witt again demanded that justice be done and the mob taught a lesson, the great gates of the prison were forced open. The mob tore into the prison, issuing blood-curdling screams for the heads of the De Witt brothers. When both were found, Cornelius barely able to stand after the previous day's torture, they were dragged onto the street, stripped, spat on, stabbed hundreds of times, lynched and mutilated beyond recognition. Their bodies were hung from trees outside the prison, and even while dead, the mob pelted them with stones. We don't know what the final words or thoughts of the DeWitts were. Certainly both men deserved to die distinguished and honoured in state after years of dedicated and courageous service. Peter Gale recalled the scene. The murder itself was committed by a small band of hotheads and villains. Many of the crowd who witnessed the deed were filled with horror and indignation. Great, indeed, was the number and vigorous the tone of the pamphlets that expressed such sentiments. The entire regent class, whose fearful passivity had made the horror possible, were profoundly shocked. But the crowd, which had all day long allowed the bullies and fire-eaters to cajole them and who had lost all respect for law and order, fear of war, party passion, love of orange, even religious zeal, had all combined to release the normal social breaks. So extremists within the mob were to blame, but the bystanders were guilty too by association and through their tragic inaction, which had led to the deaths of two of the most distinguished men the Dutch Republic had ever seen. Johan de Witt has been part of our story since the twilight hours of the First Anglo-Dutch War, which if you don't know was covered by When Diplomacy Fails two years ago, all the way back in March 2015. Johann de Witt deserved better, and I think it wouldn't be hyperbole to claim that one of the most unfortunate and tragic casualties of this war was Johann de Witt. It's obviously hard to remain objective at all times, and I find it so frustrating and unjust that a man with a record of resistance, leadership and good conduct like Johann de Witt, to say nothing for the sacrifices made by his own brother, was killed not just physically but historically as well. Incredible as it may seem, knowing what we know about Orangist culpability for the Dutch shortcomings in the war, or about Charles's lies to the mob about regent responsibility for this and the previous Anglo-Dutch war, most histories of the period evidently took the mob at their word. They took Charles's intrigues as fact and took the guilt of the De Witts for granted. Two examples can be found. In John A. Lynn's brilliant book, it has to be said, the author merely notes that William took executive authority as stadtholder, displacing from power the DeWitt brothers, who were then lynched by an Orangist mob that held them responsible for the disasters suffered that year. Though this extract from Lynn doesn't go much into the big picture of the slander campaigns or the Anglo-French campaigns against the DeWitts, it at least doesn't overtly blame Johann DeWitt for the war, or implicitly justify his murder. James Faulkner, on the other hand, in his otherwise great biography of Vauban, wrote that 
After the brutal lynching by the mob of the DeWitt brothers, whose policy had so manifestly failed Holland, the 21-year-old William of Orange as Stadtholder was appointed to the sole command of the Dutch field army and control of the campaign. Manifestly failed Holland. Hmm. I'll be honest, that one made me pretty mad. It's amazing what happens when we don't look deeper into the story. At the same time, though, it would only make sense for someone like Johann de Witt to maintain himself as an honourable statesman. That was what he had been since the dangerous years of the first war with the Commonwealth, and he had been given no reason to have a change of heart when his homeland was evidently in more danger than ever before. To some historians that enjoy the image of the corrupt, sluggish and Franco-file de Witt being murdered and replaced with the iron will of William of Orange, who could and did get the job done, it should be said that from the moment Johann de Witt lost the popular confidence in his regime following yet more lies about the Second Anglo-Dutch War and the Triple Alliance which followed, that he didn't want, don't forget, the Grand Pensionary had been on a downward spiral. Just as surely as he could sense the international system gathering against the Dutch, so too could he feel his powers weakening in the face of the mob passions and William of Orange's tenacious ambition. We can't necessarily fault William of Orange for taking over from De Witt, making use of his position and directing all the resources of the Republic towards what he, justifiably enough, believed was the true enemy of the state in France. Yet, though Charles II's biographer Antonia Fraser was quick to insist that William had no part in the killings, the event was a hideously unjust one which William did not intervene in and which he certainly benefited from. It should also be added, though Fraser qualifies this with an explanation that it was owed to the man in question, that one of Johann de Witt's killers would later be given a pension by William of Orange himself. There would be no justice for the de Witts in death, and thus it is mostly up to us to restore their name. If you ever find yourself in The Hague then, make your way to the Port, this prison gate, and stand for a while in the presence of one of the most tragic crimes in Dutch history. Salute that building, guys, because Johann de Witt was a quality statesman, and he has been a staple of our podcast for over ten years. I, for one, am sad to see him go, though ever since I began this post-Westphalian season, I knew that this day would come eventually. The crime, of course, merely added to the intense drama taking place in the Republic, with the DeWitts gone, though, William had no true rivals to his power. Any hesitant regents, though they openly condemned the murder, as did many others, were persuaded to fall in line. Anyway, there still remained the presence of a considerable number of French and Allied soldiers within the Republic's borders. Whatever unity could be maintained was worth scratching together, because it was high time that the Dutch answered back. Next time we'll see them attempt to do so, as William of Orange gets his opportunity to take it to the French. So, that's the end of this episode, guys. I hope you enjoyed it, and I hope you're not too sad as I feel about saying goodbye to Johann de Witt. I really mean that. Make sure you remember that he wasn't a bad guy. As far as guys go in history, I think he must have been a good guy. And he did a lot for the Dutch Republic during its darkest hours. So yeah, salute him, honour him, etc. Before we get out of here, I think it's only fair to list off the patrons for this podcast. So, the new patrons who have signed up this week are... 
Christopher W, Cardinal Richelieu rank. Good job there, our first Cardinal Richelieu, and we're very excited about that. And I'm very excited to send you your new mug with Cardinal Richelieu's face emblazoned all over it. Because who else do you want to have watching you when you drink your beverage? Then we have Chris S, who is an embassy intern. And then we have Claire, who is a diplomat. And that's all for this week, folks. I did record this episode on a Wednesday, so that might be cutting short some patrons who have still yet to pledge by the end of this week. But don't worry, if you don't hear your name here, you will hear it next week. Okay, thanks very much for listening, guys. And I'll be seeing you all soon.